Every day, the graduate student writers of astrobytes.org publish summaries of recent developments in astronomy. Then we sit down with recent astrobytes of our choosing and bring them together, sometimes in ways you wouldn't expect. We call it Astro Soundbites. I'm Sabrina Berger. I'm a PhD student at the University of Melbourne, where I study quasars, both observationally and theoretically. I'm Cormac Larkin. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Heidelberg and Max Planck Institute of Nuclear Physics, where I study anything and everything to do with massive stars. And I'm Will Saunders. I'm a PhD student at Boston University, where I study the upper atmospheres of Uranus and Neptune. You're listening to episode 80, The Pulsar Boomerang where we will learn all about the mysterious world of neutron stars that sometimes come back. <laughs> Actually, shout out Australia, everyone. The boomerang is a national symbol of Australia. And okay, so Australia is actually on stolen Aboriginal land. And Aboriginal people, so like the native landowners of Australia, believe that the boomerang is actually as old as humankind and are a symbol of strength, which I think is very fitting for neutron stars. They're very strong. Certainly and strong. Very old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, these things represent neutron stars very well, I think. Okay, so let's lay some groundwork for neutron stars. We know that all pulsars are neutron stars, but not all neutron stars are pulsars. So, okay, let's lay some groundwork for different types of neutron stars. We know neutron stars are some of the densest things in our universe, right? Mm -hmm. Formed from core collapse supernova. They're the second most dense thing in a universe. The only thing more dense is a black hole, right? Right. They have these really small radii, like 15 kilometers with these just insane densities. And you can think in such an insane environment, there'd also be some insane radiation that's emitted from these objects, right? Pulsars are a particular type of neutron star that's often coined the cosmic lighthouse. It emits a pulse at extremely precise times in such a precise way that they can almost be thought of clocks in the universe. Okay, so this is kind of neutron stars and pulsars, but there's a lot of stuff going on in this neutron star zoo. I think there's even a paper called Neutron Star Zoo. Is there really? I definitely go. <laughs> yeah. So what are all the different categories of neutron stars and how do pulsars fit in there? Sure. So as you say, you've got your sort of regular pulsar, which is a rapidly rotating neutron star with a radio beam coming out. If we take that pulsar and make it irregular, we get a rotating radio transient. And these are basically pulsars, but the periods aren't regular. Like a clock, they're quite irregular, and that makes them interesting. Then you can have a magnetar, and these are neutron stars with magnetic fields orders of magnitude higher than typical. And these are very rare, and they're a suspected source of short gamma ray bursts, and they rotate a bit less rapidly than pulsars. Then you have a category of transients called X-ray binaries, and this is where you have a neutron star or a black hole, so a compact object, and a normal star, and the neutron star accretes material from this normal star, and as this material falls in, it produces X-rays, and these can be periodic. So for example, a system like V4 for Cygni, which goes off every few decades, and it becomes quiescent in between periods of emission. And this kind of accretion is thought to spin up another category of pulsar called millisecond pulsars, which have periods in the milliseconds, right? Hence the name. And they rotate extremely rapidly, and this is caused by being spun up through accretion. And then there's another category which are extremely boring. These are isolated neutron stars. They're not in a binary. They're not rotating rapidly. 
they're just normal and that makes them hard to study because they don't do anything special so it's kind of tricky to notice them interesting sounds complicated there must be a lot of overlap on these is there yeah so these are often spotted through sort of phenomenologically that a thing happens and Mm -hmm. we see a bunch of the same thing happening and so we kind of associate that but sometimes it could be for example a different viewing angle or different extremes of the same phenomenon so for example if you have a, a binary system Maybe they're accreting differently depending on the mass ratios and one mass range might do one thing. You might get a regular emission. Another mass range might give you a different thing to get periodic outbursts. And so it's still the same type of astrophysical object, but it's just doing different things. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's as you say, it's a zoo and there's lots of different species. <laughs> Amazing. Nice summary, Cormac. That was a pretty thorough explanation of the different types. There's one more thing I should mention or I'll be shot um, because people at my institute study these pulsar wind nebulae and this is when you have a pulsar uh, sitting inside a supernova remnant and this can accelerate particles and heat plasma to extremely high temperatures and it's very interesting for people who do astrophysical plasma theory as some of my colleagues do so i have to give that a shout out and they're really beautiful yes that's true so they they have they get the nice pictures yeah at least we've done at least one space sound of a pulsar wind nebula gotta go re-listen to that after this episode (laughs) okay so what kinds of boomerangs do we get from neutron stars? So what kinds of transients, what does the emission look like in terms of time scales for neutron stars? Well, as Cormac alluded to, there are really two types if we take it most broadly. You got your periodic and your aperiodic. The periodic ones can be as short as milliseconds. And those are the most extreme fast rotators spun up through accretion. And they're incredibly cool to study because they have such regular and quick emissions that you can do all sorts of interesting science with them. And even the slower pulsars are still much less than one second usually. The aperiodic ones can come and go without any clear reason. So you can have bursts that are quick and then disappear. And it's not known if that's intrinsic, the physics of the pulsar change, or if it's extrinsic and it's related to the environment the pulsar is in. In addition, we've also observed something called fast radio bursts, which have come up in previous episodes. And again, this is the ultimate in phenomenological studies because it's called a fast radio burst. It's there and then it's not. And we have some evidence to suggest these might come from magnetars. In fact, one piece of evidence, which is that one FRB from the Milky Way has been localized to a magnetar. Doesn't mean it's from there, but it probably is. But that's it. The rest of these are not clearly aligned from anything. We know they're from outside the galaxy, and this is a very active area of study. So all types of boomerangs. Some are still on their way trying to make it back home and haven't been periodic yet, but many do come back around and around. Thanks so much for that great explanation, Will. Okay. My last question for you all is, why do we mostly study pulsars in radio? Well, they're very bright in radio, so they're easy to see. And they were first discovered in radio back in the 1960s by Jocelyn Bell Burnell, one of the famous cases of somebody maybe not getting credit they deserved for a big discovery. Very true. So coming back to why we study them in radio, they're less attenuated by the ISM, so we can see them from further away. So there's you know, almost all pulsars are extragalactic, and we can see them at these distances because radio waves can travel through the ISM and be much less affected than, say, optical light. 
Another advantage is that with radio, we can use very long baseline interferometry. We can combine radio telescopes from all over the world, and so we can locate them very precisely. And because it's in radio, it's relatively easy to do surveys for. So it's easier to do big radio surveys over large areas than it is in other uh, wavelength bands. And we can also observe during the day, which is nice. Wow. Yeah, that, that's a good one. ISM being the interstellar medium, right? Yeah. So it's the medium in between stars, interstellar medium. Yeah, one thing to add to that is the reason that pulsars emit in radio is because the pulses come from the polar jets out the top and bottom of the pulsar, and those beams rotate so that they pass through Earth. The radiation released by the polar jets is due to rotating magnetic dipole of the pulsar. So you have a dipole, which is like what Earth has, but it just rotates so fast and it's incredibly strong. And the equation relating the radiation from such a, an object to its rotation is called the Larmor formula. It's an equation. You can look it up, study it, and run the calculation. And it turns out it just peaks in the radio. So that's why pulsars are radio loud, as we say. But it turns out you can use a lot other than radio. You can see some pulsars in x-rays, which usually are not coming from the pulsar itself, but from the surrounding medium. You can see them in gamma rays if it's particularly strong. But radio is also great because it can detect the lone pulsars that don't have any of that fancy stuff because those will pretty much only emit in radio. So everything that Cormac said, I agree with 100%. Radio is the best way to study these. Awesome. I'm really excited for these two astrobytes today. Me too. Yeah, to learn way more about pulsars and radio and also just the exciting boomerang-like nature of these pulsars we're looking at today. Okay, honestly, this episode could be an extension from our last episode hosted by Kirsten on the Vanishing Act, since both of these pulsars that you all will be talking about today, I think, vanish for at least some amount of time. Kirsten did a Vanishing Act. She was in that episode, but she's not here. Ooh, good one. (laughs) But is she going to boomerang back in? Oh, you can count on it. I didn't see that coming. (laughs) First up is Will, who will be telling us about an astrobite, all about a one-time, 20-minute occurrence of a pulsar that hasn't been detected since. Yeah, pretty crazy stuff. This astrobite is called, for one observation and one observation only, a magnetar? And it was written by Evan Lewis about a paper titled, Discovery of an Extremely Intermittent Periodic Radio Source. Nice, succinct title. And that was written by... M.P. Cernice and others published in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. Now we've talked about transients being periodic or aperiodic. We've talked about radio transients, which are pulsars. What it's called when a periodic pulsar suddenly switches off, it's called nulling. And as I mentioned, we don't know what nullifies a pulsar. It can be intrinsic the physics or it can be extrinsic the surrounding environment and we alluded to magnetars i'll add a little more detail about that magnetars are pulsars that have very strong magnetic fields but are also spun down they're not crazy fast rotators they're really like a few seconds maybe even 10 seconds long in their period so what's happened is that as they've slowed down The energy being generated from the pulsar is not primarily from the spin anymore, but it's from the magnetic field. And the x-rays that come off of magnetars 
are from this strong magnetic field emitting the energy, not from the spinning mostly. The authors of this paper were observing on the Meerkat telescope, which is a large radio interferometer, which means it has many different separate dishes that are combined, and is located in South Africa outside of Cape Town. This is a precursor. It's on the road to building the square kilometer array, which will be an absolutely massive radio array when it's completed. And the Meerkat telescope has an automated pipeline. It takes lots of images of pulsar targets going from one to the other, and then it runs them through a pipeline, and when things get interesting, it sends out alerts. And it alerted this time to bright pulses coming from a different location than the target they were trying to look for. So it, it kind of was lucky because the automated pipeline didn't know this was from something else. It just said, oh, there are pulses. You were looking at a thing and there were pulses. Go, go investigate. And when they investigated, they're like, that's not where we thought the pulses were going to be. They were exactly at 10.4 second intervals. So it's like, okay, this is you know telltale pulsar. And then it did 20 minutes of that and nulled, went completely quiet. It was never detected before, not detected in two years since. No detections in any other wavelengths. That's actually insane. But couldn't it have just been like an instrumental blip or something or some sort of artifact in the actual radio data reduction? It's possible. The authors investigated that. They looked at the details of these blips. No, there's no chance. It's too regular. It's exactly what a pulsar looks like. And it has the specific signals, as I get to, of a magnetar. So it's real. It's definitely real. Wild, right? 20 minutes of, of fun and then bye. So the boomerang's been tossed. It's doing its job, but it hasn't returned home. So what do you do when you detect 20 minutes of great data and nothing since? Well, normally what they do in studying pulsars is called pulsar timing. You observe it regularly for years. You use that regularity and the change in the pulses over time to measure distance, rotational energy, magnetic field, all sorts of properties. So can't do that. You can guess. You can guess an upper limit on the spin down rate from those 20 minutes. And that upper limit means it would have a magnetic field strong enough to be a magnetar. It's definitely in the magnetar range, hard to confirm, but it's very likely a magnetar. What really seals it, though, as a magnetar is looking at the pulses. Regular pulsar pulses are very narrow, they're very quick. Magnetar pulses are actually broad, and they have sub-pulses within them. So each one is, like, subdivided into mini-pulses, and... That does check out for this. But one of the weird things I came across, of the 26 known magnetars, that's right, there are only 26, six of them have radio signatures. 20 out of 26 are radio quiet, and they're detected in other wavelengths. So that actually makes a radio magnetar a little unusual, but not without precedent. Here's a weird thing about this magnetar. It's located outside of the disk of the Milky Way which is a pretty rare place to find pulsars. And so the suspicion is that it might be old and therefore there's no supernova remnant because the supernova was so long ago, it's since dissipated. So you're saying the great majority of pulsars are found within the disk of the Milky Way right? because they're younger. They tend to be in star-forming regions. Right, exactly. So the only stars that will create neutron stars and hence pulsars are very massive. Very massive stars burn brightly and live a short amount of time. So if you have a star-forming region, 
By the time the star forming region is, is still forming stars, the first ones that it formed, which would be probably most massive, might have already blown up into supernovae and left behind pulsars. So yeah, it tends to be in younger regions in the disk of the Milky Way where most of the star formation is going on, not usually in the bulge. Super cool. As you can imagine, this is a pretty big challenge because while that 20 minutes of data was incredibly cool, there's no follow-up possible. And radio surveys are just not optimized for these kinds of detections. The way that this survey worked is they go and they survey known sources only. They're not surveying the whole sky. So it's lucky that they caught this one, but perhaps it did emit before, but it was just not surveyed at the right time. Now, of course, the follow-up will be done, but this could have been the return of the boomerang, and we may have missed the initial one. And it's pretty hard. We set high requirements to determine properties of these things. You can't just make a single nice observation of a pulsar and declare you know everything about it. You have to be repeated multi-wavelength observations with the best instruments. So unfortunately, until the boomerang comes back, this may be all we have. (laughs) Oh no. But I guess, did they say anything about there actively being some sort of radio instrument periodically looking at this pulsar, kind of like they do for the low-frequency gravitational wave pulsar period stuff that they're doing? They didn't mention it. But I suspect that it's been added to the list of things to survey because if it does come back, we're going to want to know. Yeah, weird and amazing. Weird and amazing. Truly the vanishing pulsar of the century. I hope it comes back. This would be an exciting paper to follow up in like 10 years in Astro Soundbite. to <laughs> put it in a time capsule or something. Like, did it ever come back? We have so many questions for the future Astro Soundbites co-hosts, honestly. I know. One of the things that amazes me about this is it wasn't just like one random blip. It was like 20 minutes of going hard and then like I know. pieced out. It blows my mind. Physics doesn't usually operate on minutes time scale. It's like, oh yeah, this decays in one millionth of a second or this star will burn for a trillion years. We don't usually have like 20 minutes. That's a very human time scale. Was this observation from this year? So they managed to publish it and put it out pretty quickly? Or is it an archival observation? This was two years ago it was made. But it was published. The paper was published very recently, like in the last 12 months. Super cool. I'm skeptical that it is actually physical. Maybe it could be an instrumental effect still. I should read the paper. But thank you for bringing us that really interesting astrobite, Will. You're welcome. A little skepticism is healthy. Trying my best over here. Okay, so today I bring you a boggling, boomerang, bonanza of a space sound. And I think I can use the word boomerang, even though I guess it's not super relevant to the space (laughs) sound itself. But because this sound I found was actually played at a Melbourne music festival 10 years ago. And that's sort of where I found the space sound. It was being discussed at that festival. So I think it's still kind of related to Australia boomerang. You know what I mean? Okay. Um, Okay. (laughs) So it's a slightly different space sound than usual in that some might actually consider it music or most would actually consider it music. It was written by a composer, but it has an astrophysical element. So today, while doing something a little different, I'll ask you to pick out the astrophysical element from the music. Oh, I like this. This might sound ultra tricky, but I know you guys can do it. All right, game on. 
We should have like a scoreboard of like weeks until Cormac gets one of these correct. We're currently on two. <laughs> it usually takes like six months. Okay, and I should mention that this is just one snippet of a one-hour piece, Whoa, guys. that's long. <laughs> so I'm not going to make you sit through one hour. <laughs> it reminds me of that show Stomp. Have you guys ever heard of that? Mm-mm. No. I saw this show on Broadway probably 10, 15 years ago with my family, and man, did it give me a headache. Ooh, it's good you weren't in the audience. <laughs> Of this, I'll have to tell you about how this piece is performed. Will, what are your guesses? <laughs> it it kind of reminds me of one of the sound things off the Around the NFL podcast. If anybody else listens to that, no, like the kind of intro music they use before discussing a game. I don't know. <laughs> Travis Kelsey. Oh, was this just because the Taylor Swift thing that you've heard of of that? Yeah. <laughs> I can't move on my Instagram without seeing this. Yeah. All right. There clearly were some percussion that related to. Uh, something kind of random detections i'm gonna go with um, detections of neutrinos interesting okay nice guess well so i'm gonna try and use logic here which is probably gonna embarrass me later on but i'm thinking if somebody's writing a piece of music it's gonna be something very famous something very well known so maybe something to do with the periods of orbiting planets in the solar system I mean, you both kind of got a part of it. Like your answers, if you combine them, kind of would include the actual answer. So a planet, a planet made of neutrinos? <laughs> no. The answer is periods of neutron stars or pulsars. Oh, you went thematic. Ah. Oh. Well, you did very well. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so good. I was like, I can't say that this will relate anything to the theme because I know it would be too easy. So I tried to... Yeah. Oh, that's so Make good. It a bit tougher, but... All right, give us a little more explanation. Okay, so this piece is called The Black of the Star, or Le Noir de l'Etoile, by French composer Gerard Grisi, who actually apparently was one of the most prominent classical composers of last century. Gerard died at 52, but he's most known for being one of the fathers of the spectral schools of composition. Spectral composition is doing a timbral analysis timbre is defined sort of in terms of what it is not so a note has three things that describe it pitch volume and timbre and timbre depends a lot on the type of instrument that you're using it's why a c on a violin sounds different than a c on a piano or a c on a trumpet 
same pitch, maybe same volume, but different timbre. And honestly, very sciencey, and reminded me a lot of the kinds of sonifications that we've heard of and tried to make here as Astro Soundbites hosts. So when you do spectral composition, you're kind of feeding raw data back into the composition and reworking it back in in a different way. Yeah, so basically Greasy took actual pulsar data. I'll share the clip of two expert musicians discussing this piece, and they actually go into a lot of what we were describing in our intro questions and like describe what a pulsar is and how it comes from really far away. Basically, he took a bunch of different pulsar observations with different periods. So that's, I think, why you got that randomness element that you Mm -hmm. heard, Will. It's because the way this is meant to be performed, it's supposed to be like an old school planetarium audio show in a way. 60 minutes and it's played by six percussionists with the audience in the center. So it's supposed to be kind of like a journey through space. And they're all like in sync, but on different time periods. So they're all like kind of their own pulsar. And you're supposed to be in the center hearing all these multiple pulsars in space. So luckily, I didn't make you all sit through one hour of that. I think, Will, you might have been really unhappy to sit in the center. But yeah, this was really interesting and I think points to another way that we can incorporate science sonification into music. And maybe spectral composition is like the original astronomical sonification in a way. Hmm. Well, that was a great space sound. Highly original and definitely didn't give me a headache, but... (laughs) (laughs) It didn't give you a headache. Yeah, not the 30-second clip for sure. Okay. The next time it's in Boston, I'll make sure to buy you a ticket and you can go sit in the center. As long as you come with me. (laughs) Amazing. Okay, so back to the actual pulsars themselves. Next, we'll have Cormac, who's going to tell us about another exciting pulsar astrobite, which actually brightens the horizons for Will's pulsar being found again in the next few decades. Take it away, Cormac. Sure. So this astrobite is called Playing Hide and Seek with a Pulsar. And it seems Evan Lewis is a very busy astrobite writer because this astrobite is also from the (laughs) same author. And the title of the paper it's based on is Missing for 20 Years. Meerkat redetects the elusive binary pulsar M30b, which just rolls off the tongue. And the authors are Vishnu Balakrishnan, Paulo Frieri, uh, Scott Ransom, et al., 14 additional authors. And the journal is the Astrophysical Journal Letters. Thank you, Will, for introducing Meerkat, because now I don't have to do it. But this <laughs> pulsar uh, was first discovered in 2001, and there were suggestions of a very eccentric orbit, which would be very interesting for reasons I will discuss later. But then it disappeared before long-term monitoring could be done, which is important for orbits. So you get multi-epoch data and you can see, okay, what's it doing over a a full orbit? And they couldn't do that. Mm. But it was rediscovered after 20 years, and this allowed for that follow-up and some very interesting conclusions. But first, we should probably talk about how you actually lose a pulsar. So it was already very faint. It was very far away. And so it's kind of not surprising that they managed to lose it, but... Before, 20 years ago, when they observed it, it was helped by a process called diffractive scintillation. And so this is where the interstellar medium, it can be turbulent and it can brighten or dim your signal. In the same way that a star can twinkle and it can get brighter or dimmer in the sky, but the timescales are longer. And basically they got lucky 20 years ago and they seem to have gotten lucky now. Also, what helped was Meerkat is much more sensitive than the telescope they used before. And it also operates at lower frequencies where pulsars are typically brighter. 
and they also have a better idea where it is now because they can localize it better with the uh, bigger telescope because Meerkat is a interferometer. Are you guys familiar with the concept of lucky imaging? This is done from ground-based astronomy and is often used for things like uh, solar system objects where you take a lot of images, very short integration time, and some of them will be lucky and will turn out to be very good because the atmosphere above your telescope will be still for just a tenth of a second or maybe even less so you could catch a good image. So if you take 10,000 and you keep only the best, say, 100, add them together, then you end up with one really good image and you throw away all the others. So this is kind of like lucky imaging over a 20-year period using the interstellar medium instead of the atmosphere, right? The pulsar to go and come, right? Yeah, so the turbulence on that is going to be over like much longer timescales. But yeah, so they could see it 20 years ago and they could see it again now. So in terms of methods, they measured the orbital parameters and component masses, and then they used these in combination general relativity to figure out the mass and inclinations possible for the system, so the pairs of values that would go together, because they can exclude some configurations that aren't physically possible. So for instance, the sign of an angle being greater than one, or values that disagree with our known Keplerian relationships between component masses and the orbital parameters. And so the predicted companion masses suggest that the companion is a heavy white dwarf, which is somewhat in tension with the known pulsar white dwarf binaries in our galaxy, because these are much lower eccentricities. Uh, but we can't rely on our past experience with galactic binaries, since globular cluster environments can produce many systems that we wouldn't see in the galactic disk, because that's a much more calm environment for forming binaries. There are many known eccentric binaries with massive companions, like M30b, and they are all in globular clusters, and so binaries like this might be more common in these environments as a result of so-called exchange mm. encounters where a pulsar is in a binary orbit with a lighter companion and then it's spun up and gravitational interactions eject the light companion and a heavier companion can take its place. Further observations of M30b could possibly teach us more about its properties in evolutionary history and shed a light on a type of binary that we wouldn't actually see inside the disk of our own galaxy. Cool. Oh, really interesting. You mentioned that eccentricity thing being more likely in globular clusters. Does that also just have to do with the fact that it's more chaotic Yeah. in globular clusters? Like there's all the star forming and all this motion and stuff. Yeah, lots of stuff going on. Pulsars are usually in more circular orbits. So they're saying sort of that the eccentricity is caused potentially by the globular cluster environment. Yeah, having lots of things to interact with. Yeah. At least that's my understanding. I mean, yeah. I guess I'll say this a lot in my time on the podcast, but I don't work on this, but it's super interesting. <laughs> yeah, we never end up working on what we're talking about. That's part of the fun. This episode is way more what I worked on in my master's, and I don't even get to be a part of it. You're the most important part of it. You're editing it. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I'll cut out all the wrong things, even though you guys haven't said anything wrong. <laughs> Well, that's what I'm terrified of, because my first episode hasn't come out yet. And so, you know, when, when my supervisors hear it and they'll be like, oh, but you, you know, this is so, this tiny detail. And, you know, I'm kind of nervous about talking about stuff that I should know about. At least with this, if I make a mistake, it's an honest mistake, as opposed to you actually should know better. So. Yeah, I know. I have that worry sometimes, too, when we're doing stuff specifically on my subfield. Anyway, so it looks like your pulsar boomerang was very well constructed, Cormac, that you just described. Maybe we just need to figure out how to make a better boomerang to observe your pulsar again. Well, <laughs> I'm taking this too far. I will always take the episode title just a bit too far. I think that's just <laughs> me as a host. Thank you so much, Cormac, for bringing us that really interesting astrobite. 
And now it's time for our one sentence summaries. So, Will, do you want to give us your one sentence summary? You got it. For 20 minutes, a pulsar released about 100 bright radio pulses out of nowhere and then returned into nowhere, at least as far as we can tell. Amazing. Cormac, how about you? Returned into nowhere sounds like a great band name, if it isn't already one. Ooh. We're always coming up with great band names on here, too. <laughs> we should start writing these down. I feel like that's 90% of podcasting is discussing a good <laughs> band name you just came up with. All right, so my one is Cat Cracks Celestial Cold Case. M30 Bean Chilling This Whole Time. Oh, I like it. That's very good. Super good. Thanks, guys. These are really, really interesting astrobites. Okay, so as you all were presenting, I had lots of more philosophical questions that came up for me. Okay, so a couple things. What do you guys think about the fact that you can say that we're missing information or, for example, with Will's pulsar that it hasn't come back yet, but we're not constantly observing that object. How can we be sure that we're not missing observations from an object? Can we use multiple wavelengths or multi-messenger astronomy help? It's a tough one. Yeah, like as we get to more sort of uh, short period transient surveys, we keep finding new stuff. So the answer is probably there are things happening that we just don't see yet because we don't have the time resolution yet to see them. But in general, I mean, with the Nyquist frequency, if there's a known process and you observe with a reasonable frequency within that Nyquist frequency, then you can be sure that at least the process you think you understand isn't happening more rapidly. But yeah, there is definitely stuff out there that we haven't even seen yet, which is really exciting. It'll keep us all in a job for a few more years. (laughs) <laughs> right. I, yeah, I think it's great fun that there's still so much to discover. This is the the great debate, surveys versus dedicated instruments. You know, for example, James Webb is the best at looking at individual objects, but it's terrible at surveying. It takes a long time to move to places. It stares for a long time. It has a really tiny field of view. On the flip side, the Roman telescope, which will launch in 2027, is a survey telescope. It's going to have a massive field of view, and it's going to be able to scan the sky over and over and over again and look for things. So it's this constant trade-off, and you can't survey the whole sky at once. Even the Vera Rubin Observatory, which is going to survey the entire southern sky like every three or four nights, which is just incredibly often, even that can't get everything, and that's the best we can do. So it's this trade-off. You want to survey and look for stuff and then have dedicated instruments ready to follow up. But there's no guarantee you'll catch it. That's unfortunately just part of the trade-off. But we're getting a lot better at it. Could we say that LIGO or Virgo, when it's actually observing, we will be detecting all the possible high-frequency gravitational waves that these instruments are sensitive enough to? Like, is that an example of one where we won't miss anything? That's an interesting thought. I guess in theory, eventually, right, you you have to keep turning up the sensitivity. And then like interferometry, you need a lot of individual detectors, right? With three, you can sort of localize where it's from, but you can't get much in terms of what it looks like. But if you got to a point where you have hundreds and they're very sensitive, maybe you can start to construct an image from that data. So eventually, yes, but we're nowhere near that yet. 
Well, just to be a little bit of a contrarian. So I was at a summer school last year where actually this was discussed about LIGO. It was a gravitational wave summer school. And part of the problem is that for certain transients, they don't really have a good model of what it would look like, say, a core collapse mm. supernova. So they may be seeing them already and they just don't know what filter to put in to look for it because they can't really model it because it's so complicated. And so that's another thing that we may be actually observing stuff right now and we just don't recognize the pattern. We don't have any way of saying, ooh, this combination of things is special. So that could be something where you have to have some prior or some model of what you're looking for if it's not immediately obvious because otherwise it could be noise. So like, for example, there's 30 different categories of you say noise that comes through LIGO and they all have their different characteristics. They aren't sure where all of them come from, but they know that they're mm. noise. And then how do you look for, for example, no two supernova may look the same in a LIGO detection. So how do you begin to build a model for that? So it's, that's another thing where you have to know what you're looking for. That's a really good point. Good insight. Yeah, I agree. So speaking of categories, another question that popped into my mind this episode is kind of stemming from the neutron star zoo is how do we categorize objects in different subfields of astronomy when there's so much overlap and are we at risk of missing something or categorizing things too tightly in certain categories when they're overlapping with a bunch of other categories what do you guys think yeah absolutely i was just going to say for example in AGN where they had type 1 and type 2 and then it turned out it was just an inclination angle thing they think so that you're looking at the same object but it gives different spectral signatures depending on how we see it from our unique viewing point. You see this as well for example in stellar physics where the wolf rayet phenomenon which is emission lines in a massive star that you can get the same spectral features from very different objects or similar features and sometimes the objects are very different, but they look kind of similar spectroscopically. And so they classify it similarly until somebody came along and said, OK, well, hang on a second. You know, this is different because of other reason. Yeah, I guess. Does that point to the fact that we should really be saying that we're categorizing based on intrinsic properties of the object versus what we actually observe? That distinction is oftentimes not clear. Just like you were saying, you're observing hmm. two stars with very similar spectra the intrinsic properties of those stars are extremely different based on this other thing mm -hmm. that we observed from them. Yeah, this is an area of a lot of debate. And, you know, like the name magnetar is related to the intrinsic property. Fast radio bursts is related to the phenomenon. So there's a constant debate about what we should choose for our categories. And then should we realign the categories once we actually know? And I believe, yes, rename, recategorize. And the field will catch up. But yeah, that is a tricky issue. But I feel astronomy is kind of quirky in that way, where like we still use magnitudes and we still have all these mm. weird units. And, you know, so like I studied yeah. somewhere where we had a bachelor in astronomy and a bachelor in physics. And the physics students would always say to us, oh, you know, you guys have got those weird units. And we'd say, well, we, you know, we can do Python. But there was always that kind of, we were better with computers, but we had these really weird units we had to get used to. The Jansky. Yeah, Jansky. I didn't want to say Jansky. But yeah, Janskis are very weird. Yeah. Right. But it's better than ergs per second per centimeter squared per angstrom per hertz per stir radiance. So it could be worse. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Or like the galaxy tuning fork that's like completely outdated mm. now, but still shown in every undergrad astronomy class yep. probably where they'll be like, oh, this is not how they evolve. But actually, this is just like a historical thing. I feel like there's a lot of leftover historical nomenclature in astronomy definitely true and you can't throw that all out like 
it'd be wise to find a way to, you know, replace all of these with modern improvements. But in a lot of ways, you can't. Like the magnitude system is so tied to astronomy, we're never going to get rid of that. But at least only have one magnitude system because yeah. it's A, B, and Vega, and I'm working on something <laughs> where I have to convert them, and I just want to bash my head against a wall sometimes. It's really, really, you know, and I know that there's good reasons why both <laughs> yeah. exist, but it's just why do some people use one and some people use the other, and near the twain shall meet. I feel like over time things can evolve, right? Like 20, 30 years ago, I bet IDL was like the main programming language in astronomy, and it slowly got phased out. It's not phased out in my department. Oh, no. Okay. I don't touch IDL with a 10-foot pole, but it was very popular everywhere. And there was the Fortran holdovers who never converted to IDL. And then you have all the IDL people. And in space physics, it's still primarily used. And in other areas of astronomy, it's it's fallen away to some degree. But like all the grad students and younger people will use Python or something else. But I know a lot of people that are stuck with the legacy IDL code that they just don't want to rewrite. Fortran 77 as well, you know. Yeah, plenty of that. Next is Julia. People have been talking about Julia for a while. Like, if it starts to pick up, I'll learn it. But, you know, Julia is kind of like the Bitcoin of astronomy. Everyone <laughs> says like, oh, it's it's the future. It's the future. But, you know, it's been a while. And I like to joke, Bitcoin has been around about as long as the iPhone. The iPhone changed everybody's life completely. Bitcoin hasn't changed anything. If you're telling me the revolution is coming, I think we've missed our moment. Hmm. Controversial take. I feel like it's just because we're all too busy with our science. We don't want to learn a new language. I tried to learn Julia recently. It was like, oh, God, here we go again. Like, I have to... Learning Python was its whole thing. But hmm. having to learn a new programming language in itself feels like a whole separate project sometimes. So once you get over that learning curve, I don't know. I feel like you're going to switch eventually. Like, in 10 years, you'll have a different take on this will another thing to pin for 10 years from now <laughs> yeah very true we might have crested the age where we can stick to python forever and be stubborn about it but that would be nice <laughs> my supervisor was given out to me earlier today for you or one of my supervisors i have two and, and then because i have two I, I can actually say one of them and it's not identifying which is nice but one of them was like oh why are you using python you know it's so inefficient and you know, I don't understand it. And I'm like, yeah, but I'm just making a plot. You can understand the plot. Mm. Maybe we'll have the astronomical coding boomerang where IDL resurges <laughs> and it's rewritten. IDL, like, gets rewritten by people who wrote Julia. Oh, my gosh. Never know. So, like, I'm working on a thing now where I just want to take a 1D slice of a plot. But for reasons I will not go into on this podcast, it's just very difficult. Relatable. And I can just say to Copilot, do this thing, and then I will just be the sort of the trained individual to interpret that plot. And then maybe you can write the paper and publish the paper and collect it into your dissertation and write the introduction and do the citations and defend for you. You could just co-pilot yeah. all of that. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like I'm very glad that all this chat GPT stuff only started now because I see master students and undergrad students using it so much and I'm like, this would have made it so much easier for me but like every great resource there are going to be people who misuse it and there are going to be people who abuse it and there are things that we don't know that because we grew up in the age of the internet and computers you know we don't know we're not perfect typists you know for example we're highly error prone our parents had to type on typewriters so they had to be much less error prone you know we we're not great at, at handwriting my handwriting is atrocious so like is that 
is that a lost art or should we be upset? It's like, you know what, things come and go. Everyone was reading on tablets, then we all went back to books, at least everyone I know did. So things come and go and I'm not afraid of using ChatGPT. I don't know what 100 years from now will bring. I, I can't predict that. But I think the next 10 years, things are going to be mostly good in that sphere. I think coding benefits will be tremendous and will take away some of the work we don't like doing. And like everything else, we'll find better and more interesting work to do. But that's what scares me that like I see, say, my parents' generation struggling with WhatsApp. And, I, you know, and to us, it just seems so basic. I wonder, like, when will I be that curmudgeon who doesn't understand this new thing that does whatever? And suddenly I'm the one getting frustrated and not knowing how to operate this new technology. Like, I just wonder, will that ever be us? Will there be ever such a leap forward that we can't adapt to the technology in the same way that, like, maybe parents or grandparents struggle now? Well, there's always going to be. Yeah, exactly. But, like, I wonder, will there be another sort of leap like you said, the iPhone earlier, like, will there ever be such a leap that we struggle with it? Because I'd like to think naively, no, of course, we know tech. I mean, I'm, I'm with it. I, I only have moderate back pain. You know, like, I'm thinking I'm still <laughs> very much, very much part of, uh, you know, like a renaissance man. But like, I'm sure there, there's going to be something that comes along that makes me, well, I don't say obsolete, but, you know, someone who struggles with this, whatever the new technology might be. And it's very possible that will happen in time. But I would challenge you to go and identify people in your parents' generation who are able to get it and with work and the right kind of thinking actually can keep up and be like them. You know, some of our advisors, for instance, are really good at staying up to date and learning new things. And they're not going to be experts in prose in Python, but they're good at it. They still know how to do it. So there's a model for how to, you know, stay up to date as things change. And it's hard mm -hmm. and it's not what most people do. But generally I've found in life that if you do what most people do, that it's not a great outcome. Sure, but I guess that's like people with a professional interest in something like Python. But say if you're just, you know, in everyday life and something comes up that changes mm -hmm. everyday life as opposed to just something like Python where, okay, it's cool for us. But, you know, and maybe people see the benefits of Python in the wider world, but like most people don't use it directly. But I wonder like, will that ever happen to us? Thank you both for your wisdom. Thank you both for this awesome discussion. I definitely learned a lot. I think the wisdom gained from this episode is that life is a boomerang. <laughs> so that concludes episode 80 of Astro Sound Bites, the Pulsar Boomerang. If you want to read the Astrobytes we talked about today, or if you want to hear more about the soundbite from today, check out the links in the show notes. You can find this episode and our other episodes wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Audible, and Amazon Music. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to keep your ears to the cosmos. Being a PhD student is like a boomerang, so like, you know, you do a paper, you throw it away, and then you get a referee report that comes back and hits you in the face.